This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Never in all my days did I ever expect to live on a ship, maybe be on a ship for a week, going around exotic places and stopping off and stuff. But to live on a ship, work on a ship, socialize on a ship, eat on a ship, do everything on a ship. Wow, it is something else. Um, But before I get into that, I just want to explain more about what Mercy Ship is. So the start of the process, so Mercy Ship, whenever it, um, Mercy Ship started in 1978, and the countries asked them to come, and Mercy Ship will come, and the volunteers on board paid to be there. Nobody's paid from the captain right down. And the hosting country asked us as a, medical ship to come and we will go to the country, the advanced teams there, and they will go and assess the land to see what the need is, to see is this a country that we could help, is it a country that we could help the people for long term too. And then if the advanced teams say yes, then Mercy Ship start. Then the screening team arrives, and that's the team that I'll be a part of this incoming year. And they'll go out into the rural parts, and this is the part that excites me. They go out and they find the people that would never have help, that could never afford help, that live away out in the rural areas, that there are no roads, um, they live in huts. Um, life is hard. Life is extremely hard, and these are the people that Mercy Ship want to help. These are the people that Mercy Ship want to say, we're here to help you. We care about you. We accept you for where you are, for who you are, and we love you. So then they come on, and our team start to assess them. And this ship is something else. It's got MRI scanners. CT scanners, it's got labs, it's got everything, you name it, it's got it. So they'll arrive and we will take their history, we will draw labs, and then they will come on. Nursing on the ward is um, different to nursing here um, in Northern Ireland. Um, The shifts start at seven o'clock in the morning until three o'clock. The afternoon shift starts at two until 10, and then night shift starts at 10 until seven. Um, Very different. Um, It's more about the art of nursing. You get to spend time with the patient. You get to know the patient. You get to know their story. And I remember struggling with this for the first while because I'm just the person who likes to go, 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 go. Let's do it. Come on, there's stuff to be done. We have to do this work. And it was more like stop and be. Stop and be with that. Stop and hear 
what the patient's trying to say. Listen to where they've come from. Like these are people that have been exiled for years, that have masses, that have tumors, that just look out of the ordinary. And people are horrified and they feel like they have to hide away. And I hate that. I'm not getting emotional. <laughs> so bear with. Um, and learning to paint nails <laughs> for the first couple of weeks, glory be. I was like, I've been ICU nursing for seven and a half years, and now I'm painting nails. What on this earth is going on? But God was teaching me something. And through each day, he taught me a new thing. And sometimes it's hard to just stop and be, because you see so much going on, and you see so much that you could do. You see so much that you could help. And sometimes God just wants you to stop. Just stop and take it in. And um, it was incredible. Like, you feel like you're going to go out and change the world, but they change you so much. They change your outlook in life. They make you appreciate things, like even the simple things. And that's what I've learned, to enjoy the simple things, to appreciate it, to appreciate things and I know like you can get into life and like I'm back and suddenly you know I'm like daddy this dinner you know I don't know about this dinner you know standards standards and all but you know you get into normal life again but I wanted to change me I wanted to be a lasting effect um on board the ship the OR rooms run 24 7 sometimes there's five OR rooms next um, and surgeons come from all over the world. Um, I've had the honor to work with surgeons that I would probably never meet in my lifetime. And to learn from them, to work alongside them is amazing. Sometimes I just stop and stare. And they come and they're so humble and they pay too. So they take off time and they pay to be on board the ship. Now, the cabins are a wee bit nicer they have. <laughs> They're a bit more spacious on like our cabins. But they fly in, they assess the patients. So they arrive, say, on Monday. We have a day for them on Tuesday to assess all of the patients that we think that they are able to operate on for the next week and a half. And then they'll be in OR for the next week and a half until they leave. Sometimes they will be doing a ward round an hour before they have to leave the ship. And ev every one of them are incredible. You're, you're not just the surgeon, the nurse. It's like a team. Everybody is the same. In the evenings, you'd sit around and have a coffee, you'd sit around and have the crack, even though half the time they don't even understand a word I say. But um, they're just people that want to make the change. Like-minded people that sometimes, I feel sometimes here I'm just a wee bit different. <laughs> like who lives on, on a ship with 400 people? That's not kind of normal. And, but being out there and being around people that want to do the same thing and do do the same thing encourages you and it spurs you on. Um, the ship has multiple teams. Um, the rehab team play an amazing role. After they go to OR, rehab, step in. 
And rehab will work with each of the patients for weeks upon weeks, and it is not easy. <laughs> the kids especially will squeal and kick and bite because it is painful, it's sore. But in order to restore the limb, in order to restore movement, in order to restore, you have to push them. And the rehab team, the outpatients team, work incredibly. For me, the past year has been spent on the ladies ward. Um, and this is a ward that <clears throat> I worked with last year whenever I worked up in the country. So let me tell you about the ladies. These ladies are ladies that have carried a child and they've went into labor. And maybe they live a way off, like miles, days, walking away from any medical care, any hospital. And even if they got to hospital, they couldn't really afford the help. And these ladies go into labor, and things don't go according to plan. And they could be in labor for as long as a week. The baby's stuck there. They've lost the baby. Because the baby is wedged in there, it's formed a hole into the bladder, sometimes into the rectum, and they leak constantly. They lick urine, they smell. So they've already lost a child that they've carried. They are now unable to control themselves. Most of the husbands leave them. The families tell them to get out because they smell and they just are not wanted. They suddenly feel rejected, unloved, and worthless and these are the ladies last year that Mercy Ship found was becoming such a problem. Madagascar has thousands of cases new every day so they decided to run this program for the whole year. Now it wasn't easy um, and we find ladies as young as 12, 12 years old Some as old as elderly that have been leaking for years and years. And they've had to go and find a new home, find a way to live, find a way to eat. How could you do that? Could you imagine waking up one day and your world falling apart? Everybody around you doesn't want to know you. Everybody around you says, leave. And these are the ladies that I had the honor to work with and care for. These are the ladies that I was painting the nails for. These are the ladies that whenever they walked in, they walked in and they wouldn't look at anybody. They held their heads in shame. And from talking to them and spending time with them, they started to realize they weren't alone. They thought they were the only ones. If you wanna go on to the next slide. And they were incredible. These are the ladies that make it. Most of the ladies don't. So the ladies here you see are brave. They are strong. They are full of courage. They are, they are incredible. They, they inspire me to keep on. 
they, they inspire me to say, stop moaning, Rachel, get on with it. Like, you think you have it hard, you don't have it hard. And these ladies, they started to get to know each other and they would start talking among themselves and started to share the story that happened to them. And some of the stories, I didn't want to cry with them there, but they broke my heart. Stories of how their husbands left them. Stories of how they were just abandoned. I, I just, my mind couldn't fathom this coming from a first world country, coming from a family that is so loving, that love you no matter what, coming from people like here tonight that love me in spite of all of my weaknesses, in spite of all of my madness, in spite of everything, that these ladies were just rejected. And, um, but we got to know them. They got to know us. And imagine walking in, in to a ship after living in a hut that has no, no lights, no air con, they were all freezing, they're all wanting extra blankets because they were feeling like they were in Iceland or something. And um, seeing all these white people, Vazas, and some of the Vazas could speak to them, which blew their mind. Had it been like, Salama Tumko, and they were like, Salama, <laughs> like, who is she and what is she saying? Which is, hello. And um, we got them doing things that you, you, you think an adult would know how to do, like to use the toilet, we had to teach them how to do that. Walk into a door, they didn't know how to open a door. They just looked at it. They didn't know about a handle. They didn't know how to open the door. We had to teach them. Like, just, like at times it took me back because I was trying to imagine myself them and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it, I tried, but I couldn't. And, um, but we had a lot of fun. We had them singing, dancing, post-op care. Oh, that was my specialty. Post-op day one, I had them up. I had them walking. I had them dancing up and down the hallways. They were painting. They were coloring. They were doing each other's hairs. Some days I didn't know what on earth was going on. It was like a salon over here, Picasso over here. The, it, it was incredible. But everybody loved coming in to the ward, seeing the difference in the ladies. Some of the ladies, if you go on to the next slide, um, some of the ladies were just do you know the way there's just some people that grab your heart? And there's just something special about them, but you can't, just can't tell why. And some of them were just incredible. There's one lady called Hanta, and she had been leaking both ways for 30 years. And she came in, and her tear was so bad. Her hole was so big. She had had previous attempts to repair it, but none of it took. And like we had surgeons from all over the world, the best in the world, and the best surgeon coming that specialized in that area was coming and she prayed day and night, God, please let me be healed. Let me be restored. And she kept on coming up to me every day, Rochelle, Rochelle, today, 
And I was like, he is not here yet. And inside myself, I was like, dear Lord, please let this man be able to do the surgery. And we had her scanned, we had her examined, and her, the surgeon said, I will attempt it, but this is so bad, I don't think it will take. Because every time you attempt to repair it, it lessens the chance. And um, she got her surgery towards the end of the outreach, and it took. And she went home dry. And Hanta was so frightened to leave the ship. She was so scared to come on to the ship, but she was so scared to leave it then that she started like saying that she had tummy aches. She wasn't feeling well. Whenever the guys came to get her to take her to another part of the outreach, she took a glass of water and just puked it up, pretending to be sick so she could stay for another day. Like, we saw it all. Like, we watched it happen. Like, but she was so desperate just not to leave us because she felt so safe. She felt so loved, accepted. And, like, we had to spend so much time with her saying, but you're going to be good. She was able to do the teaching that we give to all of the new ladies arriving. She came up to me one day and she was so excited. She was talking Malagasy, like 100 mile an hour. I couldn't understand a word that she was saying. And I had to ask the locals to come over and help me. And they were like, she wants to explain all of the pre-op care and what to expect after. And I was like, really? Now she had been on the ward for a month and a half. So she had heard the thing day in, day out. And I thought, well, do you know what? What's the harm? So I said, you teach me. And she started teaching me. She got diagrams. She got everything. She was going to town. Like, she was not missing out on anything. And I thought, do you know what? Do it. Yeah, because this is what it's about. It is about empowering the people so that they can go back to where they live and tell the people around them, and then they can spread it on. And it was incredible. So after the ladies received the surgery, they left the ship, and they went to the clinic where the rest of the healing took place. Sometimes they stayed there for a week, two weeks, a month at times. And then we had a day for, say, maybe a group as small as 10, a group as large as 20. We put makeup on them. They had a new outfit. And we had a day to say, this is the start of a new life for you. This marks the day when the old is gone and the new has come so the ceremonies were just such a special day each of them sat round and they came up and they told their story they told how they felt they told how long they had been leaking for and they thanked the chauffeurs, always got to mention. We want to thank the chauffeurs and the surgeons and the cleaners. And they were just so thankful. And you couldn't have stopped them laughing. You couldn't have stopped them smiling. The, the smile from ear to ear. And after that then, um, we had a time where we just prayed over them and prayed that God's hand would always be upon them, that God would bring another man into their life that would love them. And, um, yeah, it was incredible to see the change 
from when they first walked in to how they left. And we had a time where we asked them all, tell me how you felt prior to this dead, rejected, unloved. And then we asked them, how, how are you feeling now? Alive, loved, accepted. It was just, it's so hard to explain, but it was just so incredible. So that's where I spent most of my time. But me being me, I like to get my fingers in all the pies. So I um, spoke to the manager and said, any opportunities to go and um, nurse in other wards to experience everything that I can? So um, plastics. Plastics was more a pediatric ward. And wow, kids, wow. They're very, diff they're lovely, and I love kids, but seeing nursing kids who are sore that have just had been to the OR and had surgery, extensive surgery, most of them has had burns. And whenever a burn heals, the skin will start and pull back. So their limbs are then attached, and they can't do anything. Um, and again, they're felt that they have to hide away because of this. Kids that should be running around playing, like Aaliyah, like Ella, like so many of the kids in here that you think should be running around playing, them kids feel like they have to hide away. So whenever they walk in, um, again, they will hide away in the corner. They'll play by themselves, but they're totally amazed at everything. The TV that has these people inside it that move and talks and they're white and sometimes they're cartoons that totally looks totally weird, but suddenly they understand, I like to move it, move it, and they all start dancing and singing to, I like to move it, move it, and then they ask to play it on and on and on. It is the most joyful time ever. The happiness that flows down the hospital is just incredible. Um, the next program that runs the general surgery. Um, this is an area that I didn't get to work in a lot. They remove hernias, lipomas, no malignancies. Um, and our surgeons that come are pretty adventurous <laughs> and they are keen to try and do everything that we find for them. Marietta was the first lady that had an operation and I got to nurse her and she was incredible. She said that this lump started out so small and she went to a doctor and he said, it's nothing, it's fine. Don't be panicking about it. It started to grow and grow and grow and by the time she went back to see a doctor she couldn't afford to have the surgery. She couldn't lie down. Um, she again had to hide away because her neighbors were just like, what is wrong with you? Like your tops are like out to here. Why is that? And she had the surgery and whenever she came around, she, her hand automatically went like this. And we were like, no, no, go back. And it was right back and she just started crying. And the team went home with her and her family, her village, 
just stood and cried and then cheered and sang. And that's what it's about, restoring people and restoring them to their homes, restoring hope that people care, the Lord cares. And um, my next patient um, that I got to look after, Paulina was a little girl who was about seven months old. And I was working up in a ward that I didn't know. And things were a bit crazy. And I remember looking down at her and thinking, isn't she a wee cutie? I can't wait to have a wee cuddle with her whenever I have a few minutes. And her mum called me over and asked me to change her. And I thought, why is she asking me? You know, maybe. And I unwrapped her and saw this mass, the teratoma, you can see here, um, had been growing. She was born with it, but by the time she came to us, we didn't know if it was wrapping around her bowel, if it was involved in the spinal cord. And whenever she arrived, a surgeon arrived that hadn't been to the ship ever before, it was his first time, and he got the scans whenever he was at home and the team just said to him, do you think you could do this operation? We don't, Mercy Ship will not do a surgery that they don't think they can do, that they don't think that they will eat, that they can do to the end. They want to restore people so that they can return home. So the surgeon examined, studied the scans and whenever he arrived, we had multiple meetings. The OR team met. Um, the nursing team met to say, could we care for this after? What if this happens? What if that happens? And we took her in and the surgery took eight hours. Um, blood loss was quite large. Um, a unit of mine actually went to her. And um, after the surgery, she came back and everybody just wanted to look at her little bottom. They just kept walking up and going, oh, isn't it so cute? And her mom would just turn around and just stick out her bottom then in the end, because everybody just wanted to see it. She was just such a cutie. And her mom just was amazed that we wanted to help her. Um, the ortho program run, um, orthopedics ran from November, if you want to move on to the next slide. Um, and the surgeon that comes to do the ortho program, Frank is like nobody I've ever met. Dr. Frank, whenever he comes to have a ward round, he'll jump on the bed and start playing with each of the patients. He'll not listen to words you have to say, like, Dr. Frank, I think we have a problem. No, no, I'm playing this game first. And the kids loved him. Suddenly, the crutches were, they had everything on them. We were making headbands. Exercises was so much fun. Macarena became the favorite. And these wee kids who could, like, 
barely lift their legs, like this wee kid here in the corner. He was doing his exercises as best as he could because Macarena came on and he was going to move it. The mothers jumped up and formed this line and they were doing the Macarena to perform to everybody. It was just, sometimes you had to stop and think, where am I? Like, this is so weird. But at the same time, it was so incredible. And each of the kids just loved it. And they always came up, balloon, balloon. They soon learned English very quick to the words that they wanted, balloon, uh, play, play, up, Rachel, up. And oh, it was just, it was so, it, it done your heart good. And to see the kids, especially after surgery, learning to walk and oh, the screams and the cries of them whenever we got them up and they would fight you. But once they started taking that step and then taking the next step and then the next day they would run to you, it was incredible. Um, and then the last program, MaxFax. MaxFax is a program that runs all year. The surgeon that leads it has lived on board the ship with his family for 28 years. He came on the ship, he met his wife on the ship, got married, they had a couple of kids and they lived on the ship. On the ship there is a school, like no other school. If I went to that school, I wouldn't have wanted to be sick every Monday and Margle Friday because it was so much fun. Like. They just made school so interesting. And these kids were so intelligent. Like, they could tell me things that I still don't even know. But, like, it was just incredible. And this surgeon, he has spent his whole life here. And he is so humble and so, so willing to spend time with everybody. The surgeons that came through, everybody just wants a bit of him. Dr. Parker is the person. You think of here, Dr. Parker comes straight to your mind. And he is just so gentle and so you could learn so much from him. And MaxFax performs operations on cleft palates, cleft lips, um, tumors around the face, around the airway. And the surgeries that they attempt are surgeries that nobody else would ever attempt around the world. Um, surgeries that half occlude in our way, that you think we're not gonna get an airway in there before we even start to operate here. But they do it, and it's God that guides their hand. They pray before each of the operations. Whenever the team come to get the patients, um, they will pray with them there. Then before the OR will start, they will pray again. And it's just prayer that covers everything. Um, and the most favorite time of every day for every patient, deck seven. We go upstairs and there is this deck and there are swings. There is like, what do you call these things? Scooters? I don't know what you call them. Things that kids go mad on and want you to push you around because they've got a leg and cast and can't and can't actually like turn any of the pedals. So you have to push them without them falling over. And they just love it. And it's an hour a day and it's outside and it is so hot. And by the end of that, you are exhausted because you have ran around <laughs> the whole morning and they are itching. And see carrying a child up that have their casts on. And they might be so light in theory, but see with them casts on and you're going up 
flights of stairs, oh my dear goodness, my heart was pounding out of me like a dinger. And sometimes the parents were like, are you okay, basically? And I was like, <gasps> open the door quick. And you couldn't get the child down quick enough. And then it was like trying to crawl away, you know, to go and get a toy. And they just loved it. Um, so that is a very quick oversight as to what Mercy Ship does. Um, these are the patients that we will be looking for. I have to know all of this, what Mercy Ship's scope is to go out and find the patients this year. Um, this is what I call home for the next 11 months. Could you imagine living here? Now, I know what everybody says. She's living on a cruise ship. She's got the time of it. There's a pool and everything on that thing. Did you know that? That's why she's so tanned. And then she goes downstairs and have a Starbucks. Aye, she's some laugh. I was at the pool maybe twice in my whole time there. Um, the families love it. It's great for all of the kids there because they just love it because the kids on board a ship, they're like bouncing off all of the walls and the parents just want to exhaust them out. So bring them up to the pool and they'll jump in a hundred times a day. But the ship has eight decks. The first two decks are engine rooms and they run every day, every night. The deckies never, they work constantly. Um, it's always the people that you never see work so hard. And um, the hospital then is on the third floor, along with a few of the cabins, which is where I lived. Um, fourth floor is all cabins. Deck five is the dining room, where 400 people go to eat. Imagine being back at school. And you walk in and it's just noise everywhere. Well, Starbucks Cafe is like my haven. I grab my food and I get out of there. And the cafe is like a wee bit quieter. There's not as many people. And that's where I would eat generally. Deck six is um, the school and more cabins. And deck seven is like a few rooms that you can hire out if you want to watch a movie. And more cabins as well. And then deck eight is where the pool is. Um, living on a ship, could you imagine living in this? Just one wee part now, not all, just this. And one of these. For all of your clothes, magnets are like gold dust. Everybody wants magnets. Everything sticks magnetically. Suddenly I become like this, like I have to have magnets. The bigger the magnet, the more it'll hold. You know, I become fascinated by magnets. And it's weird how your life becomes and you just get used to it. And like I wouldn't be the cleanest person in the world, as my dad and Rebecca will testify to, as my room's still a tip and I fly out on Thursday and dad's like, when's this room going to be tidied? Soon, soon. But it is so hard trying to keep such a small space clean whenever, like you're bringing stuff for 10 months. You know, you want to change your clothes a few times and you sweat so much you think it's hot now. You're sweating constantly. The sweat just runs off you. But all of the meals are cooked for me. 
which is incredible, because the first time round Matt had won, that was a struggle, we'll all remember that well. Didn't really know how to cook, especially from scratch. So it is fabulous that everything is cooked for me. And sometimes you feel like you want to do it. And sometimes you feel like, I don't want to eat so early, but you have to eat. And then sometimes it's just hard to get your own time. You're living with 400 people. You're sharing a space with people from all over the world. Some people may snore. Some people may turn on every light at six o'clock in the morning. You're thinking, what on this earth are you doing? Like seriously, some people are morning people. Some people are not morning people. Give me to 10 o'clock to I have a second coffee and I am sucking diesel. Before that, just smile and nod and I will smile and nod back. And it's just very trying sometimes. But at the same time, you meet people that are incredible. You make friends from all over the world that, Caitlin, next, um, that make your day happier, that help you through hard times, that are there for you, and you get to know each other intensely, fast. And some of the experiences this year alone are experiences that I thought I would never experience ever. But these people behind me are the people that came alongside me. They didn't have to speak, just had to hug me. They just looked at me and I just nodded at them like, I will be fine. And whenever you have a dream in your heart and suddenly you're starting to live it out. Sometimes the two don't match up. Sometimes you can really struggle and I really struggled. The first couple of months, I thought this place is weird. It's full of weirdos <laughs> and everything is awesome and everything is not awesome. And I just thought, am I the only real person in this place? Like, this is weird. And I just remember thinking, but I wanted this for so long. I know God has put this in my heart and I know I'm meant to be here. And the war that was going on inside me, my face said it all. I was trying to be so happy and FaceTime and home was the hardest thing for the first couple of months because you tried to put on this persona that you were loving life and oh, it's great. And really inside you wanted to cry your eyes out and say, I don't even know how I'm feeling. I can't even describe to you how I'm feeling. And I remember one day in the shower, two minutes showers, by the way, two minutes, girls, you quickly wet yourself and you turn it off. Then you lather up and scrub like a dinger and then you try and rinse off really quickly. Now it's like an honor thing, so you don't want to abuse it. But I remember standing there and the tears were tripping me. Just saying, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why I'm feeling like this. Like, this is my dream. That, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I believe you've called me to do. Have I got this wrong? And I remember getting out of the shower and just thinking, right, Rachel, enough is enough. And I, <laughs> I made up this mantra that suddenly everybody in the ship found out about. Who are you? A child of God. What are you? Fearfully and wonderfully made. And... I can do this. And let me tell you, some days I had to say that to myself 10 times in the mirror. 
And then suddenly I started to get to know other people. Breaking through that surface of everything is awesome and everything is amazing. And suddenly they were struggling too. And I was like, that's okay, just vent. And they were like, no, this is so bad. And I was like, no, vent, this is real. Like, this is what I like, this is what I need. I need people to be real with me. And suddenly, if people were having a bad day, they were like, trying to do our accent, like, who, who are you? Who are you? And I was like, what are you even trying to say? <laughs> and you know, they were like, child of God, uh, what are you? And I was like, fearfully and wonderfully mean, and I can do it, but I don't feel like I can do it today. You can do it. And this was the running theme. And you know, sometimes you have to G yourself up. Sometimes you have to dig in whenever you want to hide away. Whenever you just want to say, I don't know what's going on here. And I remember like talking to my dad one night and I must have said, oh, I was off ship and I was off ship this and I was off ship that. And my dad just said, do you ever be on ship? Do you like being on ship? Well, I thought to myself, don't continue this sentence anymore. And I just went, of course, yeah, I'm sure I live on a ship, I work on a ship, I'm always on the ship, the ship is my life, you know? And he was like, but are you enjoying it? Every wall came crashing down. And I couldn't even speak because I couldn't even say how I felt. I couldn't even say, I didn't hate it, but I wasn't loving it. And I wanted to love it. But how do you get yourself to that point? And what I found was that I was back in a country that had stolen my heart, a country that I never knew existed country that I thought was a cartoon and wasn't really real, and a country and a people that became so dear to my heart that suddenly I was back in it, but I wasn't in it. I was living on this ship that is very Americanized, and really, whenever you're on the ship, you could be anywhere in the world. And I struggled with that. My mind, my mind could not process that. And I started comparing everything to what I had lived in up in the country amongst the people working with them. And you can't do that. Like, no two people are ever the same. A day is never the same. So why is the same experience gonna be the same? Even though it's in the same country, it's not gonna be the same. God's gonna wanna teach you things that you didn't learn last time whenever you were in the country. He wants you to learn something new. And I had to change my mindset. I had to change it. And I just thought, right, a day at a time. I'm going to take this day for what it is and see what I can learn from it. And there was so much to learn. Like, I just remember the first couple of months saying, I'm never going to learn everything I have to learn here. Like, it's such a specialized thing. Like, every program, every ward is so specialized. And I want to be the best. I want to give the best care. I want to be the best nurse to the people that have never been nursed ever before. I want to treat them like they're a queen. I want to treat them like they're mine. And, but I never ever thought I would be going back for another year. And, you know, once I started changing my mind and changing how I was looking at things, suddenly God was opening my eyes to so much. And I was starting to enjoy it. And we planned a weekend away 
through the rainforest, Madagascar is an amazing country. If you ever get a chance to go, go. Travel's not easy, I'll just tell you that much, but there's so much to see, so much to do, and the rainforest is just incredible. And because Louise and I had been there for like half a year before, we organized this trip and there was 10 of us. And we were having an amazing time. We had met up with a doctor that was working up in the north. I spent the weekend with her and it was just incredible. And we were making our way back on Sunday, the 1st of November. And um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's good not to know what the next day has in store or what's gonna happen. So <clears throat> the ship looks after you like you're a family. Once you become a part of the crew, you are a part of this family. The people from all over the world care about you. And we had signed out on Friday and we're due to be back on Sunday before nine o'clock. The curfew was that time. And getting there, our bus broke down. We hired out a local man to drive us in local transport. But we had done that for six months. That's how we had got around. That's how everybody gets around. Everybody gets around by that. But we had like went one step better and hired out our own. Whereas a taxi bus is like crammed full of people. If there's a space, they're gonna fill it with another person. So we thought, we're not cramming, we're gonna have our own. And um, we hired out. So there was a driver and his friend, and it took us about eight hours to get there. We broke down a few times as what happens in Africa. And we finally got there. So on Sunday, I was like, we need to leave early because dear knows what's gonna happen and we have to be back or else the captain's gonna go mad at us. So we set off around lunchtime. The night before we had had this meal and I had had prawns and had dodgy prawns. So I had been up sick the whole night. So the next morning I just thought, I just wanna get on the bus and just get back to the ship. I feel so rough, let's just get back. And, and like I knew the journey was gonna be windy. It was going down the mountain and it was windy roads and it was hot, it was sticky. I just couldn't wait to get back on that ship. Could you believe it? Like I couldn't wait to get back on the ship to the Aircon. And we set off and we were on the road and there was a whole big argument as to who was gonna sit where. No, I'm car sick, no, I'm car sick, no, I'm sitting in the front. And I was like, well, do you know what? I'm sitting near a window because I have been booking all night. So unless you want me to book over here, you might put me next to a window. So the driver's seat behind him was where I sat. And we set off around lunchtime. It was about 11.30. And we were going about 40 minutes. I had my headphones in, music on. And we were going, everybody was exhausted. We had been searching for lemurs day and night. And everybody was just tired. Everybody just wanted to get back and just relax, have a shower. And everybody was asleep. And suddenly I felt the bus stopping and I thought, why is he stopping? We're not even on our end of the journey. And I opened my eyes and the smoke was starting to fill in. And he turned around, sorry. He turned around and like basically started screaming something. And I was like, get out of the bus, get out of the bus. I didn't know what exactly was happening, but I just thought this thing's gonna blow. That's all I could think. Our doors started jamming, because obviously it's a first class bus, you know, and the doors are just gonna open like as soon as you say open. No, the doors jammed, people were jumping out of windows, pulling other people through windows. We finally got out, the brakes overheated, went on fire. So they 
bled them, reattached them, and said, right, it's good to go. So picture the scene. Boss at the side of like this mountain road. Ten Fazas, two Malagasy's, and I was like, really? And I don't know anything about cars. I know how to put the water in, know how to check the oil. That's about it. And I turned around to my friend, who's a farmer, and she was like, yeah, this is common, like, because it's such a steep mountain, you know, you're having to use the brakes really heavy. I was like, right. And then my other friends from America said, this happens all the time at home. Like, this happens all the time. It's fine, Rachel. And I was like, well, don't really have an option. Stuck up this mountain. No reception. Our phones don't work. Nobody's went past in the past half hour. So what are we going to do? We'll have to get back to the ship. Louise, my friend, turned to me and was like, I have a feeling we shouldn't get on this bus. And I was like, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And she was like, no, seriously, seriously, I mean it, we really shouldn't, I have such a feeling. And I was like, well, what are we going to do? We can hardly walk home. You know, we're hours upon hours away, like this is our only option. And I remember turning around to my friends going, like, you think this is okay, don't you? Because I didn't know. And they were like, yeah, it'll be fine. All piled back into the bus. Everybody in the bus. And took off. I had my headphones in straight away, feeling so rough. Music on, blasting. Weren't five minutes into it till Louise grabbed my hand and dug her nails in. And I opened my eyes. My two friends who were in the front, Nicole, Jane, they had their arms up. And they were like going like this. And I, in my head, my music still blurring, had no idea what was going on, thought, they think they're on some roller coaster. Or what the heck is going on here? And suddenly I like started looking around and thinking, here we're going pretty fast here. And we took a corner, two wheels, and I managed to rip the headphones out and the screams and fear started filling my head. And Louise grabbed my two hands and was like, we are going to die. We have no brakes. Our brakes have failed. We are going to die. And I remember just thinking, what? Like, I could see her lips moving, and the words were going in, but nothing was computing in my head. And I was like, what? And she was like, we have no brakes. We are going to die. And the driver was, like, pumping the brakes. He was, like, working down the gears. And then he turned to scream to his friend and see the fear on his face. I was like, this is not good. I didn't feel scared. I didn't feel like I'm going to die now but I didn't feel I'm going to live. <laughs> I remember Louise just looking at me going, we're going to die, we're going to die. And she just buried herself in me. Because we were heading for the cliff, which dropped to the rainforest. You couldn't even see the bottom of it. And the other side was the mountain. And do you know, whenever you think you possibly are about to die, you think you're going to do so many things. You don't do anything. You just literally freeze. And you can hardly even gather yourself. And maybe it was a good thing that I had the music in my head and I wasn't aware of everything straight away. And I just remember grabbing Louise going, we are going to be fine. And she was just like, we're going to die. And she just buried her head in me. And like, it's kind of funny looking back on it now, but see at the time, See the fear 
on everybody's face and you just thinking, oh my dear goodness. And suddenly the bus turned. We were going for the cliff and I just thought, this is horrendous. If we go over this cliff, we're never going to be found. Nobody's even going to know we went off the cliff. Like, and suddenly a phone call came back to my mind as this bus was hurtling down this mountain, picking up speed. And I had been talking to my sister a couple of nights before leaving. She had this dream. Don't talk to Becky if she has a dream. <laughs> she was like, I woke up, Rachel. I'm telling you, it was so real. And I was like, what was it? She goes, I am telling you now, you take no risks, no risks. <laughs> and I was like, why, what happened in this dream? And she goes, you died. And like, the ship contacted us, but we couldn't find you, your body. Like, we couldn't find your body and like you're in like some accident or something and Rachel I woke up crying like I mean it was so real don't you dare take any risks and you know FaceTime makes it all the more real she gets the finger in there don't you take any risks and I was like don't worry I'll be fine you know how I am everything will be grand and suddenly this conversation was going through my head then Louise we shouldn't get on this bus but we were on the bus we were hurtling down this mountain and I just remember it turning and going towards the mountain. We were going so fast, I thought we we're gonna shudder along this and go clean over the side. This is never gonna stop us. And somebody yelled, we're, we are gonna crash. And I just remember saying, this is it. And we crashed and we shuddered along it and then we stopped. Now it was a Malagasy bus, it wasn't sturdy. All of the seats buckled, so everybody was launched forward. My friend was launched from the back to the front. Her concussion was so bad, she had concussion for five months. Um, my head was slammed into the driver's seat. That was the only seat that didn't go forward, which probably was the seat that I wanted to go forward, because it said still and everybody else's seat came crashing into me. And we stopped and suddenly there was silence. And I remember hearing like groans and people starting to waken up. And I came round and was thinking, we're not dead. I'm thinking, we need to get out of here. Like, because all I thought was, we've, we've crashed. Dear knows what we've hit. This thing's going to blow. And my side was the only side that was free. And of course, that was the side that jammed in the first emergency exit brace. But the man made sure it was working before we took off again. And I went to like open the door and my finger was like sticking to the right, totally sticking the opposite way. And I remember just clicking it back in and thinking, I don't have time for this. And just thinking, we need to get out of here. Went to open the door and it wouldn't open. Well, I blew a gasket. I remember just getting my feet and going, you have got to be kidding me. And I like kicked that thing. Finally, we got it open and like, I was just like, right, we need to get out of here. Like, this thing's going to blow. And I remember people just being hysterical. Like, they just started screaming. And I just remember, like, grabbing people and dragging them like rag dolls and firing them along the road, thinking, we need to get everybody out of here. And Nicole, who was in the front seat, broke her arm. And it was a very obvious break. And she was like, I'm moving nowhere. And I was like, Nicole, you are moving. This thing is going to blow. And the girls were like, we'll kind of assess it and said, no, everything's fine. So suddenly then, um, we had to get help. What do you do whenever you're up a mountain and your phones don't work? And I was desperately trying to phone every number I had. 
and all the phones were everywhere. And I remember like cars started stopping and they were like asking, can we help? And I just remember saying, can I have a phone? I need to phone somebody. And I remember phoning the ship and in my head, I just thought, state the facts. Don't get emotional, don't get your emotions involved here. State the facts and get off the phone. So I start getting emotional, I'm gonna howl, because by this stage, everybody was crying. And I remember like the phone call answering, hello, Africa Mercy reception. And it was like, <sighs> relief. I got through to help. And I remember just thinking, this girl has no idea what this phone call is gonna bring. And I was like, hi, my name's Rachel Lappin. I was away with a group to the rainforest and our bus is after crashing. Nobody's dead, everyone's alive, but there's some people hurt. And the girl said to me that we're standing nearby. Whenever they heard me saying nobody's dead, everybody's alive, they went berserk. Because the reality of what had just happened started kicking in. And I remember, like they dispatched emergency teams right away. The captain was informed, a doctor came out um, with the works, morphine, everything, splints, everything, you name it, it was there. They made it to us in four and a half hours, which probably should have took six. And I remember just picking a hotel and just abandoning, and we like took over the hotel. We, we had people lying everywhere. People were starting to kind of complain of like neck, neck pain, back pain. And I just thought like any, like we could have so many injuries here, but it is a miracle everybody's walked out of this alive. Like yes, a broken leg, yes, a broken arm, but like in reality, it could have been so much worse. And after it, like the care that we received on board was incredible. Like nothing was too much. Like the friends you saw there, they were suddenly wanting to do everything for us. Like they were so thankful. Like as soon as I phoned, apparently like they made this overhead announcement saying that 10 of our crews been involved in a really bad accident and people started away, started praying. And they start, and they knew that it was us. They knew it was a crazy Irish, like, and um, they started praying. And we arrived back to the ship just after midnight. The captain was standing outside, waiting. The manager of the ship was waiting out, and it was just like your parents waiting for you coming home, like waiting to receive you to say we're so thankful that you are alive. And I remember just feeling so overwhelmed of this place that I thought was so weird and struggled to like get my head around, suddenly I was starting to appreciate it and see it in such a different light. And for the next couple of weeks, my mind just went into overdrive. I couldn't think about it. Everybody on the ship wanted to talk to the people on the crash and I did not want to talk about it. I was alive, I was well, it was done, end of. And everybody just wanted to hear the story just one more time. How did that make you feel? And they had like counseling sessions, a group counseling session. Could you imagine that? I sat there and I thought, well, I'm not talking. Everybody else can talk, I'm not talking. And they got to me and they were like, you've been very quiet. And I was like, well, there's not much to say. 
And I remember them saying, you know, Rachel, I think you have a lot to say, but you just don't want to say it. And I felt guilt. I felt that it was my fault that the crash happened. And I wanted to take the broken arm. I wanted to take the broken leg. I hated the fact that everybody was hurt. I hated the fact that everybody was traumatized, that everybody was having nightmares. And, you know, saying it out loud, suddenly everybody was like, it's not your fault. It's not, it, it's none of our faults. It's one of those things that happened. But in my mind, every time I shut my eyes, I seen us going over the cliff. My mind was tortured. And I remember I didn't sleep for weeks. And everybody in, on the ship was like, is Rachel okay? And I could hear them whispering. I could hear them, I could see them. And I remember just one day saying, I'm not fine. How on earth am I meant to be fine? How on earth am I meant to like get through this? And I remember there was a song that the ship played and it started becoming like an anthem to us. And it was like about the fear, but the love of God that like casts out all fear. And the end of the song, it's this girl, she gets very passionate and she's like, I am a child of God. And like, she nearly screams it. And I remember playing that over and over and over again and lying on my top bunk after crawling in and my back was breaking and just crying my eyes out and saying, I am a child of God and I am not dead. I am alive and I'm meant to be alive. My story is not over yet. I'm meant to do so much more and I am drawing a line now. This is it. And um, yeah, we got over it. And then another story that happened, um, my little lady in red, Amarista, if anybody read the blogs that I wrote, um, Amarista was a little girl that I met in my Matawan experience that I nursed up in the hospital up in the north. And um, she had a tumor on her face that was starting to occlude her airway. She couldn't really eat very well, and it was growing vastly. We'd done multiple tests. It wasn't malignant and the hospital up north couldn't perform the operation. Every time they tried to cut into it, it bled and bled and bled. And we didn't have the resources and then Mercy Ship arrived and suddenly it was like, the ship can do this. Like this is exactly something the ship would handle. And um, we got her seen by the team and it was suddenly a go. And I remember being so excited. Like, I was like, God, why am I going back here? And suddenly everything was starting to fall in. And I remember her OR date was set. And um, we, I was like, I have to be there. I want to be there for this. Her mom knew me after months. And she's, she knew me too. She was a little girl that, again, hid away, didn't really know how to show any affection, was like more rough because that's how she had been in life. And, but I got to know her and I broke through that. And suddenly she was running to me, hugging to me and like was so scared, was clinging on and I wanted to be there. And so we're first to war and suddenly, the surgeon cut into it and started bleeding. 
Dr. Parker, the leading surgeon who can do any operation, has done so many, was like, we've got a problem here. And I remember standing in that OR room wanting to scream. And I was just like, not again. And he was like, what do you mean? And I had to explain everything. And he was like, we're going to have to take another approach. So we tried doing other methods. And living on a ship is very intense. And the stories you hear and everything is just like, your, your mind is just constantly bombarded. And even things you think you is challenged. Life is challenging every day. And we decided to go away for a break. And we went away. Monday morning, we flew out Reunion Island, which was so close, it was only a couple hours away. And we thought, this will be great. This will clear our heads. You know, our friends are kind of starting to part. And it'll just be a lovely time. And from Monday to Friday, life changed incredibly. So Amarista was due to go into surgery on Tuesday, which I wasn't aware of. And I came back to our hotel on Tuesday evening to a message, did you hear what happened? And I remember just texting my friend back on, what are you talking about? And she just wrote back the little girl's name. And I automatically got this like sinking feeling. So she had been taken into the OR and They tried to remove the tumor. So they had been doing this like new radiotherapy to try and take down the tumor to a size that they could operate on. And the bleeding was a bit of an issue, but suddenly out of nowhere, she arrested. The whole, or the whole team were like so taken back. They worked on her for like an hour. They got her back, and but there was no signs of any kind of life. And she was taken in to the, she was tubed then. Um, my friend was nursing her. ICU was opened, hadn't been opened in months, and was suddenly opened. And um, friend texted and said, you should be here. The mother really wants you here. She's asking for you. And I was in Reunion Island, up in the middle of these mountains. And you know, being a nurse is so incredible. It's so good. Suddenly you start giving your heart away to so many people. And this little girl, got into my heart, even looking at her would still make me cry. And I was like, right, what is the story? Is it, is it going to turn out good? And I started hearing the facts and I was like, this isn't going to end well. And everybody was like, we're praying for a miracle. We're praying for a miracle. And I knew inside my heart, this isn't going to turn around. 
and so that happened on Tuesday and they were trying to hold on and they were trying to hold on because they wanted to locate her father which was way out in the bush they were trying to find him they located her uncle and they brought him and she passed away on Thursday evening and I remember just thinking I've missed it I feel them and my friend texted me to tell me what had happened and other friends on the ship had been texting how's the holiday going how's the break going but I knew what they were saying but they didn't want to say it and I just like called it out and I was like I know what's happening and everybody back in the ship was like this is her girl and I remember just thinking Lord just let me get back to see her mum just let me be able to like kind of close this chapter and end it well as well as could be and um I got back at lunchtime at one o'clock and she left the ship at 11 30. I was so cross I couldn't believe I had missed her by such a small time and I got back to the ship and everybody started coming up to me I'm so sorry to hear about Amarista and I remember just thinking don't talk to me and my friend Miriam said to me we'll go out later on and I'll talk you through it and I'll explain everything and I remember going out and we had a meal and all of her friends were over at this side and we we're sitting outside and she was like explaining everything that happened and I was like wanting detail upon detail to try and get my head around her because I suddenly had left I had left and Amarista was well and alive and suddenly I came back a few days later and she was gone and I just could not my mind could not understand this and um Amarista um her mum had been asking for me and the day crew went to speak to them because the day crew felt that they had missed something whenever they were asking all of the history and stuff they felt bad and suddenly the mother was asking for me and said that Amarista loved me and that Amarista really enjoyed her time and stuff and all and I remember her telling me this over dinner and my heart it was like an arrow straight to my heart it was the last thing I ever expected her to say and I remember I just started wailing and I could not stop the tears and you know from hearing everything that happened Amaris and her mum experienced such love that they had never experienced ever before in their life they had made her a coffin dressed her and she was looking beautiful and they gave her like a guard of honor as she left the ship Amarissa had affected everybody on the ship in ways that they didn't even expect and you know sometimes in life that happens and sometimes things happen and we don't understand why and I remember just saying to God this is not fair I remember being so cross and walking around a lake and just crying going saying God this is not how it's meant to be like it's meant to end happy like this is meant to be a happy story that I met her before and now the two are kind of matching up but it wasn't meant to be that way and even going back up to the hospital I in some glimmer of hope hoped that her mum would 
be there, but she didn't live there. She had traveled for days to get to the hospital and she wasn't there. But who I did meet was a lady that I had cared for on the ladies ward that I didn't expect to. And it was just like God saying to me, but here's who you are meeting. Look at her, she is restored, she is healed. She is back to living with all of her family. And, you know, it still hurt, and it still does hurt. Um, but just because something's wrong doesn't mean, just because something hurts doesn't mean it's wrong. And um, because of that experience and other experiences, this is what has led me to going back. Next. Um, so where am I going? West Africa, Benin. Um, I have been to Nigeria and Niger. Benin is a new country for me, but I'm excited to get back to West Africa. West Africa is full of life. It is full of culture. It is full of pretty mad and um, it's going to be hot. I'm going to be a part of the team that goes out to find the patients. Um, this year we're doing it differently to last year. So the screening team is going to go out on a three week trip in October and we're going to go inland and we are like employing people from the local areas to go out to the places that they will know where the patients are. We're going to educate them as to what Mercy Ship does and they will know what to look for. Then they will send us a picture of what the patient's like and then we'll say to them, yes, come and meet us at wherever. And then we have another trip towards the end of the year. Um, the screening team is a small team. Next. And um, screening selfies are gonna be Let's, let's just say it's me, and we all know that I am into pictures, and um, it's me. And our leader is Nate, he's from America. Our um, dockside coordinator is Rhea, she is from Holland. And Harmon is our field coordinator, and he's from Holland as well. And the screening nurses are me, Kayla, who is from America, and Mel, who is from Australia. So it's a small team that does a lot of work and it's a big challenge and I know that I have a lot to learn and sometimes that could overwhelm me if I start to think about it. But I'm excited about it and, and I'm excited for the challenge. I'm, I'm excited for what this year has in store and I couldn't do any of this without all of you guys. You guys help me in ways that you don't even know. And um, I put one of these on each of the chairs. And I would really love you to pray for me. And if you feel led to partner with me, that would be incredible. Because I can't do this. Like, I thought I was starting out for a few months, and that would be it. Suddenly it turned into 18 months, and now suddenly it's turned into two and a half years. I leave this week, Thursday. I fly out of Dublin, and I'm going to meet the ship, I'll be doing the sail. So we can pray for smooth waters and smooth crossings because the ship isn't meant to like sail. So it more or less crashes down on all of the waves. 
So I would love to say it's going to be a fabulous experience, but I think I'm going to spend most of my time booking, probably. I can take as many tablets as I want, but I don't think the sail is going to be smooth sailing. But I'm excited. Um, some of my friends that I made last year will be back. Um, this year will be different. Stepping out alone is challenging. Leaving family is hard. My emotions were starting to go with it start of last week and just like preparing myself and so much I'll be missing and missing everybody here um but I know it's what I'm meant to do and that's what I have to um keep my eyes on that is what God's called me to and I love it I do love it and it is hard but it doesn't make me not want to do it, it makes me want to do it more and I feel alive and Really, you guys help me do what I do out there. I'm nothing special and I'm nothing, but it's God that enables me to do it. And I thank you for each of your prayers, support, the giving. It means more than you'll ever know. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.